Well, hey guys, all you wiretappers out there, welcome back to the show. Uh, you know, I'm back here in the studio of Gangland Wire, but I've got uh, a, a famous man here, uh, a, a guy that uh, that agreed to come on the podcast, Jason Kamenaw. You know, I, I got on to Jason. I was researching this story, Jimmy Chagra's story, and I found this podcast called Son of a Hitman, and I listened to it. It was about Charles Harrelson, who was the man who was convicted of murdering Judge John Wood, and Jimmy Chagra was uh, not convicted. He was arrested and accused of paying Charles Harrelson. And Jason did a real in-depth, deep dive into the life of Charles Harrelson, the hitman. It was a great podcast. It's called Son of a Hitman, and, and I highly encourage you to listen to that. Jason, welcome. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Now, where can guys find that son of a hitman? It's not on the Apple app. So uh, you explain to them how to find that. Sure. So it is, you know, we originally produced it for Spotify with Spotify. So it is exclusive to Spotify at the moment. Although actually today, I just spoke to Spotify. We're going to be getting a wide release where it's going to be available on all platforms uh, in the near future, probably in a couple of weeks. So oh, at the moment... Check it out on Spotify, but uh, yeah, it will be it will be wide very soon. Okay, and by the time this is released, guys, just look on, look for Son of a Hitman on whatever podcast app you've got, and you're going to be able to find it. So I looked at this story, and it's a story that just keeps on giving. This Jimmy Chagra and his whole marijuana smuggling operation is, we've already had a couple of episodes, uh, three episodes by now, and it's just, it's the most complex, interesting and he is the most complex and interesting guy and story that I have done that I can find so much information about, too. It's just it, it's amazing. And and I want to go in on a deep dive on Charles Harrelson with Jason, because he is the expert on Charles Harrelson. And, and as you all know, he is the father of Woody Harrelson, the actor. And as I understand it, Woody's not real crazy about anybody doing, and there's no movies about this. I don't know if you've noticed that, guys, but there's no movies about this, and, and I don't know if there ever will be. Jason, you know, I, we talked a little bit before, and, and Harrelson goes back into South Texas, got Texas roots, and, and he was a Texas criminal for sure from day one. Tell us a little bit about that first murder, I think, that uh, that Berg murder. Uh, the first murder that Charles Harrelson was charged with was Alan Berg. He was a carpet salesman in uh, uh, Houston, Texas. I was introduced to the story of Charles, you know, based on the rumors. You know, he claimed that he had been involved in the JFK assassination. So yeah. that was how I like entered into the story in the first place, began looking at it. Then, of course, the Judge Wood murder, the assassination of a federal judge in 79 is huge news. Uh, but then when you, you know, you start doing research, looking back further, uh, right, he killed this carpet salesman. Whether it's the first murder he committed, I don't don't know it's the first murder he was charged with he was found not guilty for this murder i don't know whether I, it, it looks as if he did commit this murder and he was just he had a good lawyer and he was able to get off but yeah this was a carpet salesman in houston texas his brother his younger brother david Berg, wrote a, a great book about about this called run brother run i spoke to david you know went to houston met with him spoke with him about it through his research he determined that, he, you know, and even at the time of his brother's murder, he believed that this man who, again, I'm going to say was found not guilty for hiring Charles Harrelson to kill this guy, but a rival carpet salesman named Frank DiMaria uh, is who was accused of having hired Charles Harrelson to assassinate 
or kill uh, David Berg. You know, it was like a longstanding beef that these guys had over people owing each other money. In Through my research, it looked as if Allen Berg, the first victim, he had some big gambling debts mm. to some not so desirable people. Um, this guy, Ted Lewin, who was involved in organized crime. He was a, an associate of Meyer Lansky. Allen Berg owed him like $100,000 or something over a basketball a basketball game. As the story goes, Charles Harrelson met this guy, Frank DiMaria, in a bar. Frank DiMaria said, oh, I'm having this problem with this guy. Charles Harrelson threw his business card down on the table and said, oh, I could take care of that for you. And his business card is this insane... <laughs> <laughs> insane thing i don't have it in front of me but it's it's this long list of things that he does you know including assassinations <laughs> you know i also spoke to charles harrelson's and again i want to repeat frank de maria found not guilty he was not you know he was not convicted of this so in no way you know am i saying he did this but you know this is charles harrelson's girlfriend ex-girlfriend from that time from 1968 I uh, was this woman, Sandra Sue Attaway. I was able to speak to her. She's since passed away. Uh, but I spoke to her on the podcast. She described having accompanied Charles Harrelson to go pick up this guy, Allenberg, from a bar. She had called, called Allenberg prior to this, said, hey, I've seen you around. Meet me at this bar. Promised sexual favors. Charles Harrelson showed up with her in the car, forced Allenberg into the car at, gunpo at gunpoint, drove him out to a swampy area and shot him. You know, Charles then was picked up a couple of years later. So his brother, Claude, was a police officer and was actually working as a private investigator at the time. And the Berg family was trying to find out what happened to Alan. You know, he had just gone missing. They didn't know where he was. You know, they were assuming the worst, but, you know, didn't know what had happened and hired like a slew of private investigators, one of which was Claude Harrelson, who happened to be Charles Harrelson's brother. And so that was a strange thing. And it, he was trying to get money out of them. He was saying, listen, I, I can get some more information, but I need you to give me more money. And so on first appearances, it looked like Claude was in on this thing, that he was in on a scheme with Charles to try to extort money out of these people. Uh, but when I sp spoke to Sandra Sue and looked back at the the police interviews that she had done, it appeared that Claude was actually, Charles and Claude did not get along. They were not friends. I think partially because Claude was law enforcement and Charles was as far from that as you could get. Claude, I believe, had a suspicion that his brother was involved and was trying to get information out of his brother or one of his associates and was asking for more money, more money, more money to give to those people to get them to talk. Um, so I don't think he was actually in league with Charles at that mm -hmm. point. I think he was actually, you know, working on his own, actually, you know, trying to tell the family what had happened. Cassandra Sue described going, him taking her out to dinner or lunch or something like that and trying to get information out of her, basically like milking her for information. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, it was a guy she ran off with who ended up talking and telling the cops what she had told him happened. And then she was willing to, to cooperate with police for immunity. And she testified against Charles, but he was able to get a good alibi. He said he was doing a horse trade at the time <laughs> that he was buying a horse for some, with some brothers who were from the same town where he had grown up, Love Lady, Texas, or, or one, one town over. And they gave him a good al alibi. He was represented by Percy Foreman <laughs> in that first murder trial, which was unusual in that Percy Foreman was an extremely famous defense attorney at the time. And Charles Harrelson, by all appearances, was just 
you know, this, this low level thug. So, you know, as we started looking at that, we're going, how did, you know, how did he get put in touch with someone like Percy Foreman at this point in time? And, you know, we were looking closer at that sort of organized crime angle. You know, we did find that he was working with uh, some famous gamblers at the time doing collections and things like that. Jack Treetop Strauss, his name was thrown around as somebody who was doing collections for. And then there was also Benny Binion was, you know, ran gambling operations around around that area of East Texas and then eventually moved out to Vegas, which is where Charles Harrelson ended up, you know, in the late 70s when he did uh, commit that murder of the judge. So... Interesting, you know that that whole yeah. Las Vegas world is is central to this whole thing. By all, it runs all the way through it, starting with Benny Binion down in Texas, but he moves to Vegas, and and the whole Vegas connection and the Chagras, and it just it is throughout the whole thing. It's it's kind of amazing. Uh, Jimmy Chagra hired pri- pilots to fly drugs who were. He had met because the guys worked there at air charter service out of Las Vegas. And, and it's just, it's pretty amazing that Las Vegas was such a part of, of this whole mm-hmm. scheme from one end to the other, starting with that. Now, did uh, I seem like, did I read somewhere where there's some supposition that Harrelson just knew that this guy was, uh, De Maria was mad at Berg and, and he killed him, then came to him and, and wanted money? Is that so? Would that be possible? It's, you know, there were people that said that's something that Harrelson and his associates would do. Uh, Someone suggested that. Whether that happened in this case, I don't know. Ultimately, I did speak with a woman, you know, I had covered the the Berg murder in in the second and third episodes of the podcast. And then actually, you know, as episodes started airing, people would reach out to me with new information um, because they would listen, you know, people who I didn't even know existed or were involved in these Mm -hmm. cases. And one person who reached out was a woman who had been friends with Frank DiMaria uh, back then. And she claimed, again, whether this is true, I don't know. You know, he denies, he denies this, he denied involvement and, you know, had no comment. But she said that he made a tearful confession to her one night drunkenly mm-hmm. saying, I killed that boy. She took that to mean he shot him. But I spoke to Sandra Sue Attaway, who told me that she watched Charles Harrelson kill him. So, you know, yeah. who knows? Who knows? So that, that's another thing is is a witness when he does the murder. And, and if I remember right, that you found that he seemed to like to have witnesses whenever he did a murder, right? which, that it, you know, I can't explain that one, but you found that to be true. For the first, you know, the first two murders that he was charged with, the second murder being uh, Sam DeGilia, uh, who's a grain dealer in Texas. And, you know, it looked like this guy, Pete Scamardo, who, again, he was found not guilty. Uh but this guy, Pete Scamardo, allegedly hired Charles Harrelson to kill a guy who he had a business dispute with. Um, and in that case, yeah, Charles Harrelson brought along this guy, Jerry O'Brien Watkins, who abetted in, you know, they picked up this guy. They told him they were, you know, I, I can't remember what they told him they were going to do. They drove out to some, you know, remote grain silo or something and uh, forced him out of the car at gunpoint. O'Brien Watkins ended up testifying against Harrelson again. You know, you would think he learned after the first one, like, you bring somebody along, they're going to testify against you. But he was actually picked up for, you know, this was just a year after the Berg murder, and he was picked up for the two murders simultaneously. Uh, Got found not guilty on the Berg murder, but before he was released, 
They then tried him for the Digilia murder and he was found guilty of that. Only did five years for murdering this guy and then and then gets out and then a year later, Judge Wood is assassinated. So he he, he was kind of a heavy drug user and a, and a heavy drinker. We'll call him an alcoholic, but uh, more than likely he was. And uh, he, he then gets into some cocaine dealing and, and drug dealing too. What do you what do you remember about that? Was it wasn't real extensive, but he he tried to get into it. Sure, yeah. From all accounts, he would inject cocaine. He would shoot up cocaine, which is it's a choice. Um, it's unusual. I, yeah, it's unusual, right? But yes, I I read that you know, and this was from his own testimony in the Judge Wood trial. He claimed that he was trying to set up some drug deals in Mexico, uh, and they were actually planning to hollow out some golf clubs and fill them with cocaine, uh, and, and then smuggle them across the border. Obviously, these were these were the days before uh, those scanners, <laughs> T- TSA, and all that. You know, for whatever you know, I don't know that that plan uh, came to fruition. But he claimed that it was oh, Chagra was not paying me to kill the judge; he was paying me for some drugs. So I was doing a drug deal and helping in that. You know, I, I don't know that I believe that to be the case, but uh, <laughs> but that was a claim he made. So yeah, I mean, I think he was involved in some low level, low level drug deals here and there. I think he was a guy, you know, he was a freelance criminal, right? It was, yeah. You need you need me to move drugs. You need me to move weapons. You need me to kill somebody. You know, I'm available. I'm for hire. I mean, they they've drawn the parallels between him and uh, and Woody Harrelson's character in Natural Born Killers. Also, I understand. <laughs> yeah, you know, another interesting one is No Country for Old Men. Yeah, uh, in the Cormac McCormick novel, they he references uh, they killed the judge in '79. He's referring to the Judge Wood assassination, <laughs> and then Woody plays a hitman in No Country for Old Men. That's right. That was <laughs> ironic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hey guys, Gary here. I'm interrupting your regularly scheduled program to introduce you to a new thrilling podcast called Smokescreen, Betrayal on the Bayou. Chad Scott was the DEA's golden boy, but his right-hand men were a little too interested in the product. You're a drug cop who occasionally uses drugs. Right. How do you work that out in your mind? It'll enter your mind a couple times. It didn't really with the X or the Molly. Now, method would enter my mind. You would. When they're caught dealing drugs, they flip on Chad and confess everything to the FBI. But what the feds find is a lot more complicated than drug dealing. Listen to Smokescreen, Betrayal on the Bayou, wherever you get your podcasts. Art imitates life, huh? Yeah, yeah. Oh, and I'm sure, I'm sure the, uh, the connection wasn't lost on him. I'm sure he knew it is too. (laughs) No, I'm sure it wasn't because he was, he was pretty heavily involved in, uh, in, uh, his dad's life later on after he gets convicted and goes to the penitentiary i talked to yep. a uh a guard up there and he said yeah he said he used to come in all the time he says really nice guy so what else about harrelson that, that you think it's important is is he you know meanders through the seamy underbelly of of south and midwest texas mid-texas and on up sure. to las vegas i mean one thing that was interesting we found you know he claimed he told anybody who would listen that he was involved in the jfk assassination you know i spoke to multiple people who he had personally told them yeah oh yeah i did that and so we were looking into what's the veracity of that you know is 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 any of that true is there even a realm of a possibility of a world in which he could have been involved? And one of the things that was interesting, we found that guy, Jerry O'Brien Watkins, who abetted in the second murder of Sam DeGilia, we found FBI documentation on him 
that said he trained in a guerrilla warfare camp down in Cuba pre-revolution. Or I, I, I can't remember if it was anti, I think it was anti-Castro, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. which was, you know, the CIA for a long time was trying to get rid of Castro uh, and at times working with organized crime elements to do mm-hmm. so. You know, there's a lot of theories that the JFK assassination was linked to organized crime, to potentially people who had been involved in the Bay of Pigs, Cuban, you know, Cuban exiles who were then unhappy that that program ended to try to to try to get rid of Cuba. JFK pulled the plug on that. Charles Harrelson also, there's rumors that he knew Jack Ruby, that he was smuggling guns down to Cuba. Potentially, that's his connection to Jerry O'Brien Watkins. I don't know. You know, Woody has said that his dad was in the CIA. There didn't appear to be any proof of that. Yeah. That being said, could he have done some work with some people who were working for the CIA? Yes, entirely possible yeah. around around that time. Beyond that, I mean, I think another guy who he was said to have run with was this guy, Larry Colbreth. Someone told me they believed he was the person who shot Judge Wood and not Charles Harrelson. Larry Colbreth was someone who he killed a guy who was rumored to be the head of the Dixie Mafia, was found guilty of it, did no prison time, which suggests he was at the very least an informant working with police, if not more. So there's, you know, there was some some interesting elements there where it's like, who, who are these guys connected to? Who are they working for? Who are they working with? Similarly with Charles Harrelson, he, he kills Sam DeGilia. He just does five years and then he's out on the street again. Yeah. It's Texas, but it's a short, it's a short prison term. <laughs> it was, but uh, when you get into that kind of level of organized crime, um, people that do crime for a living, local politicians and even judges and prosecutors, they, people drink in some of the same bars and, and they know each other. <laughs> and there's these kind of seamy businessmen are, are in and around that too. And they like that. They like to gamble. And so they go to these same card games and, and high stakes card games. So I, I've seen this, you know, it's just like, what, what is that guy doing with that guy? It just doesn't make sense. But a lot, usually it's gambling. Really, gambling is a big kind of a, the glue that holds a lot of that together. You know, I believe it that, that he did have those connections, you know, in that CIA thing during that time that around the Bay of Pigs, the CIA was hiring all kinds of freebooters. There's a mob guy out of Chicago whose real name uh, was Italian, but his he went by Richard Kane, and he had been a Cook County Sheriff or something up there. He'd kind of been in around law enforcement, and he disappears, and he's down. He's got some kind of a deal down in South Florida working with the CIA. I think they hired all kinds of, of freebooters like that. People wanted to be mercenaries, and you know they went in and ripped them off for some money and trained and then went back home. So, so it, it all makes sense now. If I remember right, that picture, there's a famous picture of the cops leading off some people. And one of them kind of looks like Charles Harrelson. I wonder if anybody's ever put a, a uh, one of these uh, AI uh, facial identifications things to, to match those two up. So what I'll say, you know, I've seen that photo, obviously. it's So it's the three tramps, you know, the three tramps mm-hmm. theory that, you know, there were actually these guys got picked up from the grassy knoll, you know, and that, that they made, you know, people who believe there were multiple shooters. It wasn't just Lee Harvey Oswald. And one of those guys, yes, he looks similar to Charles Harrelson looks later in life. Back at that point in time, you know, I saw a photo of him, an ex-girlfriend of Charles Harrelson's from high school sent me a photo of him from high school. And this was only a few years later. And he was a skinny little guy. Yeah. You know, he's a, the, the three 
Tramps, the guy who people say that looks like Charles Harrelson, it resembles him, but he's like a bigger guy. He's a little heavier set, which Charles Harrelson looked like that once he was picked up for the Judge Wood assassination, but that's in 79. That's that's yeah. that's ages later. Personally, I don't believe that's him. I will say, I think the Harrelson brothers, you know, his sons, I believe they they will off the record. I think they believe that he had something to do with it. I don't think they think he was one of the three tramps, but I also think they enjoy the intrigue that surrounds yeah. it. Yeah. You know, um, it's interesting when you're talking about the gambling as the connection between law enforcement and some of these criminals. When I looked back at, I found some pages of Charles Harrelson's journal uh, from when he was in prison. Didn't get to see all of it, but from the pages that I did see, he talked about when he was in high school back in Love Lady, Texas, he would go to these gambling, uh, underground gambling dens and play cards with these guys. And he described like a guy who was a judge, a lot of law enforcement guys. And that's where he picked up gambling. That's where he learned to do it. And from the time that he was young, he was like a young teenager and he was going to these games uh, and then became a card shark, you know? But yeah, I think you're absolutely right. That's, that's where that comes from. Yeah. Those connections. So his gambling move moving on a little farther forward. I mean, he he makes contact. I would assume with Jimmy Chagger the first time. I appears to me, I'm not sure, is in Las Vegas. Jimmy Chagger is like the one of the most audacious, well known gamblers in Las Vegas back in these days. He was bringing trunkloads of money and just depositing it at Caesar's uh, Palace Casino in there with their cashier. He didn't even count it. They waited for him and then figured out about what it was and gave him credit for it. That is the way he washed his money back in those days. So I I, I guess uh, all those kind of people, quasi-criminals, I mean, a lot of us like to go to Vegas, but those quasi-criminals, if they like to gamble, they're going to gravitate to, to Vegas. So is that where he first met up with Chagra? Did he have a Texas yeah. connection or was it in Vegas? So I mean, the Chagras, obviously, they're they're based in El Paso, but Charles Harrelson first met Jimmy Chagra. I think he met his brother Joe first, yeah. but knew of Jimmy Chagra because Jimmy was known to beyond just he would throw his money around. You know, he had so much cash, like more than he knows what to do with it. So he would he was a big tipper. You know, everybody said he would like give enormous tips and loved gambling and would gamble on anything. According to Charles Harrelson in his testimony for the assassination of Judge Wood, he claims that he went to Vegas trying to get into a card game with Jimmy Chagra so that he could rip him off gambling. They basically got a hold of some dealers, Caesar's Palace dealers uniforms, were wearing those and then set up a private game in a hotel room and their plan was to rip off, you know, as many people as they could they would cheat at card you know these guys were were cheating to try to rip people off and he claims that that's why he you know initially tried to make contact with jimmy chagra according to the fbi he made contact at that point and that's when the this idea of you know wanting the judge to get knocked off occurred when that information was shared now there's conflicting accounts whether charles harrelson and maybe some others went ahead and carried out the assassination and then said hey pay me <laughs> I did this, now pay me. Or whether Jimmy Chagra put the word out on the street, I want this judge knocked off. And then, you know, I spoke to one person who said that he believed there were several groups who were basically, there was sort of a bounty put out on this judge. Several groups were saying like, hey, we're going to collect on this bounty. 
And then these are the guys who who pulled it off. You know, I recently spoke to someone who had, you know, a few names came up in my research uh, toward the end when I was trying to determine, you know, did Charles Harrelson actually do this? Did he act alone uh, in carrying out the assassination? And there were a group of names that came up that the FBI had determined and these people didn't have anything to do with this. But other people who I've spoken to who were more involved in the criminal world said, no, these guys were involved in this thing. And one of the names that came up as being part of this group was this guy, Honest Charlie Potter, who I, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't come across him. I just came across the name a few times uh, in some of these FBI documents. I recently spoke to somebody who had reached out to me who said that, you know, Charlie Potter was on his deathbed. You know, I think he's still alive, but he's, he's close to the end. And he asked him about the Judge Wood assassination. And this guy said, I don't have anything to say about that because there's people who were involved who are still alive. Charles Harrelson's not alive anymore. Jimmy Shocker's not <laughs> alive anymore. So, you know, to me, that suggests that there were there was a larger conspiracy here. Charles Harrelson hadn't acted alone in any of his previous murders that, you know, that we know of. And I would be surprised if he went to, you know, make the biggest assassination of his criminal career and he went alone uh, without any help. You know, they also found the FBI found a ladder at the at Judge Wood's uh, apartment complex. They found a ladder against one of the buildings leading to the roof, uh, and they they said to me, "Oh yeah, we determined that that didn't have anything to do with the assassination." How'd you determine that? Yeah, really. <laughs> In what way? Um, <laughs> you know, it wouldn't surprise me if there were lookouts. Yeah, there were also sketches made. You, you look back at at police sketches. There were p- sketches made of several different people from that time. I think ultimately, like they had a case against Charles Harrelson. That was the case that they made because they could, you know, they could prosecute him and they could put him behind bars for it. And they needed to put somebody behind bars for it. But I, d- I do think there was uh, a larger conspiracy at, at hand there. Um, among a larger group of people. That would make sense. I mean, the way he's acted before, he brought somebody in to help him. And, and then the the kind of the intricacy of it to sitting in that parking lot, waiting for the judge to come out by yourself. And, you know, does he come out? I mean, I've sat on people and you don't know when they're coming out. And if you're, you get distracted just a little bit, all of a sudden they're out and they're in their car. And so he was, you know, obviously... I think he probably had help. I wouldn't be a bit surprised. Like you said, I look out with a walkie talkie, some other set of eyes on it, some other way to, you know, have a, a, a chase car, a car, that, a crash car, rather. If cops pulled in about that t- same time, then they, some uh, car to take out the cops. I mean, it was a pretty important assassination. This was not just going and killing some carpet salesman. One hundred percent. And bigger money, bigger money involved. Yeah. You know, that Berg murder, I think it was like five thousand dollars or something yeah. like that. You know, it's nothing. Whereas this dollars $150,000, it's yeah. you know, it's a bigger yeah. score. At, at um, least. Now I, I like that theory that that Jagger was just mouthing around about, you know, somebody needs to kill that judge. And and a guy like Harrelson hears that and he says, Hey, hey, <laughs> Let's go do this. I mean, he just, he was that audacious from what I learned about him. He was that audacious. He would just on his own go do that. And he would, he would bring other people in. He didn't do that. In my opinion, he did not do that alone. I agree. I agree. It doesn't, it doesn't appear to be the case. You know, the official, the official story is he did that alone. And it's interesting. He, you know, he got found guilty for, for it, but Jimmy Shogger got off. But ultimately I think he just, he had a much better lawyer. (laughs) <laughs> Oscar Goodman, the, the Oscar case Goodman. of the case of the century for Oscar Goodman to get a not guilty for Jimmy Jagger with 
uh, there was quite a little bit of evidence that piled up on him. But James Kerr, the mm-hmm. prosecutor who worked in Judge Wood's court, and he was he was a ballsy, you know, take no prisoners prosecutor too in this drug business. That that court, mm-hmm. Judge Wood court, and that regular prosecutor assigned to that man, they you did not want to get in front of them if you mm-hmm. were in the drug business, and and somebody tried to kill him just not yep. that long before. It was just crazy. Yeah, yeah. The uh, yeah Kerr, we were able to get in touch with him. He was very did not want us to reveal his location. No, uh, really. You know, still, still a little jump. I mean, hey, he survived getting his car riddled with bullets. Like, <laughs> yeah. I can understand you're a little jumpy after that. Um, <laughs> his brand new Lincoln Continental. I read that if there's one little pleasure he allowed himself, he had a new Lincoln Continental, and they shot it all up. <laughs> yeah, he said his he stopped and his gloves fell off. It was a cold day. His gloves fell off the seat. He reached down to pick them up. He like he it wasn't that he was just had the wherewithal to dodge these bullets. <laughs> he reaches down to pick up his gloves and then gunfire opens up on his car. <laughs> and because he's driving this big Lincoln Continental, he was protected. And, yeah. and they drove off without uh, affirming that they had made the kill. And he survived the thing and then went into went into uh protection, protective custody. Wow. And Judge Wood refused. You know, they were giving him, they had people, Kerr said, you know, he had people basically living in his house. Judge Wood, it was the same thing. They had people stationed in his house. And at some point he was like, I can't, I can't live like this. Yeah. You know, get the hell out of here. And ultimately he did get assassinated, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, it was crazy. Now, in a short period of time, assassination attempt of Wood, I mean, of uh, Kerr, Lee Chagger is killed, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which turns out to be a drug ripoff. And then Judge Wood is killed. It's and that's mm-hmm. Jimmy Chagger's brother, guys. And you know a lot more about him from uh, the next podcast after this. I'm gonna go into the murder of Lee Chagger big time, but uh, just crazy, crazy time during that. Time. It's it's wild, and uh, you know, at first at first glance, you start going, "Whoa, is this some kind of insane conspiracy that involves more than this?" The Lee death, in particular, Lee Chagra. You're like, "Is this connected to this? You know, is this connected to this assassination yeah. attempt and then this other murder?" But yeah, apparently, no. A- initially, I was thinking, "Oh, maybe there's some connection here that people haven't drawn yet." Looking into it further, yeah, it just looks like it's a random robbery gone wrong. I think even uh, kind of we're speculating a little bit. I think even Jimmy Chagra. He thought maybe the government had killed his brother and then yep. let's yep. go kill somebody else with the government. So, uh, you know. It's yeah. Crazy. And I think paranoia set in for Jimmy. By all accounts, his brother Lee was, you know, it's his older brother. He was a successful defense attorney and yeah. he believed that Lee would, you know, if Jimmy got into trouble, that Lee would be able to get him out of it because yeah. he was an excellent attorney. And now Lee is murdered and Jimmy's lost to the safety net yeah i never thought about it like that that now he didn't have lee and he's looking to go in front of judge wood <laughs> without lee he yep. feels naked <laughs> i got a yeah. feeling yeah yeah interesting yeah really yeah and that's how it's been that described way. to me uh yeah and it, it makes sense and then for the kerr assassination attempt you know they linked it to some guys out of new england some organized crime guys out of new england mm-hmm. having been involved in that but you know it does look as if jimmy chagra had connections to those guys through like Follies Cove. They were bringing marijuana up yeah. through, through the, it was a Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Area. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, right. So because of that, they had to, you know, pay their, pay their dues to the, yeah. uh, to Hinkley guys. <laughs> but never know. I think one last thing here, 
Harrelson, Charles Harrelson's woman, she bought the gun. She was intimately involved in this whole thing. She was part of the payoff money and everything. What, what do you remember about her? What kind of a woman is this that, that Joanne Harrelson was so involved in this thing? Like I said, she bought the gun. I, I know if I remember right, they definitely tracked. Yeah, they her got down her. to buying that uh, sniper rifle. Like right, and a gun. They got her. her prints. They got her fingerprints on the contract to buy the gun or the license to get the gun, whatever it was. At the yeah, time. It was. It seemed like she knew about his, his criminal activities, that she was intimately involved in it. As far as, you know, she passed away, so I didn't get a chance to speak with her. From accounts, you know, Charles, I don't know, was the nicest partner. <laughs> yeah, I could imagine. <laughs> oh, there were accounts of him being abusive and whatever. So whether Joanne was doing that stuff out of fear for her life, whether she was just doing it as she's going to benefit from this too, I'm not sure. I do know that there were attempts made to get her to flip on him. I know that Larry Colbreth was said to have been driving her to the courthouse every day for the here for the trial, mm-hmm. which, you know, is that an intimidation thing? Don't, <laughs> you know, don't say anything. Or is it just they're going, you know, to... Yeah. To bring her to the courthouse but yeah as she was intimately involved in it they tried turn they found because they were recording his all the visits to the prison right they had wiretaps they were recording his conversations so they were recording his conversations with her and then through those wiretaps they found that he was actually sleep he was having an affair with her daughter as well <laughs> uh and so through that it was his stepdaughter you know and through yeah. that they were then tried to turn her on, on Charles by saying, hey, he's been sleeping with your daughter. Yeah, of course. You, know, you still want to still wanna stick your neck out for this guy? It was a messy thing. I think he had a lot of different female visitors who they found, oh, wow, this guy's got relationships with all different people here. Yeah. Um, and he's, you know, telling them all, promising them all the world, you know, when I get out of here. Yeah. Hey, there, there's, uh, there's guys in every penitentiary. Yeah. <laughs> They're exactly like that. I mean, exactly mm-hmm. like that. They'll even talk them into helping them break out. I know one instance of that where then the woman ended up getting killed when she tried to, to hijack a, a helicopter to land and get her man out of prison. So, I mean, uh, it's uh, the, the ultimate in codependency here, I think. <laughs> yeah. It knows what codependency is. We once had a discussion at work about how there's more women in prison because of codependency because they got some man or some drug addict man or some dude that they want to serve they want to make him happy they want to keep him happy because they're in this relationship they're so dependent on the relationship that they'll go out and do stuff that then ends up putting them in the penitentiary yeah that's not that uncommon i think you're right like it's a combination of of intimidation but also there's that that, like the seduction that's happening there and that's that codependency i think you're absolutely right yeah, you know, Charles Harrelson actually did attempt to break out of prison, which is how he ended up in Supermax. He fashioned a rope ladder out of prison sheets. wasn't even long enough to get over the wall, uh, <laughs> but he and two other inmates attempted an escape. The guards fired a warning shot, and they stopped. They gave in. They surrendered, and then they <laughs> was that a, was that eleven words? Supermax. You know, I. I'm trying to remember which which prison he was in at that point. I think it must have been Leavenworth. Yeah, probably. Those walls are high, Leavenworth. <laughs> and when he had been in jail uh, prior to the Berg trial, he attempted an escape where they found a gun in his cell. 
that had gotten smuggled in somehow. They said he had been paying off the guards to like let lady friends visit. Yeah. So it might have been how how that gun ended up in in his cell, but the guards found it before he was able to use it to get out. But yeah, crazy. Yeah. Well, and I've heard another story exactly like that, where the guy ended up with a gun in his jail cell because she was just so infatuated. He was like a total professional criminal, had been all of his life, kind of a master criminal, and she smuggles him in a gun, and he ends up in a shootout with the guards, and, and one of them kills him. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's not not unheard of. All right, Jason Cavanaugh, Son of a Hitman is a podcast. It's it's a really good podcast, guys. I know people listen to more. I listen to many podcasts, so I want to promote this one because I think it's worthwhile to listen to. It, it was a good one. I was uh, I listened to every episode all the way through and was was really entertained by it and educated too. I really appreciate that you did that, Jason. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on. This was a part. all right. Well, guys, don't forget, I like to ride motorcycles, and so look out for motorcycles when you're out there. If you have a problem with PTSD and you've been in the service, go to the uh, VA website and get that hotline number. You'll get some help there. If you have a problem with drugs or alcohol, go see our friend, former Gambino member, Anthony Ruggiano, and he's we're in the treatment center business down in Florida. You can go in the treatment center business and have a counselor who used to be a mob guy. I mean, you know... <laughs> And you can find the hotline number. He's got it on his website, anthonyruggiano.com. So thanks a lot, guys. Thanks a lot, Jason. All right, thank you. All right, thank you. All right, thank you. All right, thank you.